Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this episode, you'll hear Lillian Devane. When I was a baby, okay, all I would eat was pate and a few select soft cheeses. (laughs) And I was like, oh. But before that, I just want to say, Chris Castiglione is a very good friend of the show, one of the people who made this show a reality. Chris created the Risk website among other things, and one of the reasons he was so important to us was that he taught himself how to code. And now he's developed this amazingly effective class called One Month HTML that'll teach you how to code in less than a month. Coding is the most sought-after job skill, period. Everybody needs a website, and being able to do it yourself is huge. One Month HTML is the easiest way to learn how. You'll build an actual website. You'll be welcomed into a community of over 12,000 other students. There's hours of easy-to-follow video tutorials, hands-on exercises and training. And the best part, if you get stuck, there's always a real human being there to help you out. So enroll now at onemonth.com risk. Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining, and you'll be helping to support risk. Again, it's one-month HTML, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll be able to code HTML and CSS on your own. That's onemonth.com slash risk. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Ratatat. 
behind me now, and this is live from Boston. It's actually our second time in Boston, but the first time first time went a little haywire. This time went a little haywire, too. We lost a lot of the stories that night due to uh, problems with the recording equipment. However, we are thrilled with the three that we did get in good form to present to you today. We have to thank Amy Malkoff, who is a fan of the show, a fan of the podcast, who wrote to us and said, I think I can get you in here in Boston. We ended up at this really unique place called the Nameless Coffee House. If you go there to Boston, you won't find it because uh, it's just a thing that sometimes happens in a room of a Unitarian church. It's literally been happening since 1967. Folk singers and poets and Andy Kaufman have performed there. I saw the notes scribbled in the little notebook that the church had kept that said uh, maybe they should not invite Andy Kaufman back. In other words, he was probably in pitch-perfect form. Anyway, the Unitarians are super sweet. They love everybody, and you can talk about vaginas right in their church. And vulvas. Just don't confuse the two. Anyway, here's three wildly different stories that we did get from our night in Boston. Really, really solid stuff. We start, the fellow who's done a lot of performing around Boston, Josh Poirier, with a story we call... My bodyguard. So I was never the biggest, toughest kid growing up. Uh, I grew into myself, obviously, but... Uh, as a kid who loved Dungeons and Dragons, video games, and comic books, I was obviously the target of many a bully. When I finally found a chance to get away from this, my parents moved into a new neighborhood when I was 12, and I got a chance to fully appreciate these geeky pursuits that I wanted to do and enjoy that brand new undiscovered country called Outside. <laughs> what it was, it was a great place. It was idyllic. Uh, we had a basketball court and a playground right behind the house. We had a two-minute bike ride away from my best friend. And there was a video game arcade and a bowling alley, literally within a five-minute bike ride. So it was amazing. It was a great place to be a kid. And here I would finally get to be free of bullies. It was about three days in when the hell started. Uh, I was actually trying to ingratiate myself with the kids in the neighborhood. And I was playing a game of Relivio or Kick the Can. One of those games where you uh, hide. You have one person that's in, you run and hide. And then you got to get back to home base and call ghouls, or at least that's what it was in this neighborhood. Uh, so I had found my favorite hiding spot. I always loved this hiding spot where right next to home base in the bushes. So that the second they said, second it reached 100, I heard her hit 100. Her eyes glanced over and passed over me. She hadn't seen me. So I was instantly going to become the coolest new kid of all time. And in Boston in 1987, that's a really tall order. So I ran, I, I looked behind me quickly to see if anybody was behind me and exploded out of the bushes only to be met with the most insanely powerful clothesline that I've ever had in my life. And as I grabbed at my throat and gasped for air, <laughs> as the tears kind of just cleared from my eyes, I looked up and I saw the devil and the devil looked back at me. And this, this devil was about five foot eight, 
squat, not really muscular, with mischievous eyes. And he looked at, and I, all I heard was his voice, his, his laughter and this voice that just said, hey, get up, you fucking pussy. Huh? Yeah, look at you crying, you little pussy. I knew that evil existed at that moment, and that evil's name was Paul. <laughs> now, this went on for a long time. This, one, this was endless. I mean, the second time I ran into him was when he came to my bus stop. He actually followed me to my bus stop and stood there just staring at me, quietly silent, till finally I just I acted up and I was like, what? The answer was a huge punch in the arm and a quiet, nothing. From that point forward, I knew that I had to avoid Paul at all costs. So I actually became the uncool kid in, the, in, the, in, in school because I rode the front of the bus while he patrolled the back. <laughs> Uh, the other incidences are really too numerous to really discuss, but they did include the fact that I'd be playing basketball, and out of nowhere, a rock would come with unerring accuracy and nail me in the head. Or I'd be mindlessly riding my bike around the neighborhood, around the few streets that I did ride around, and all of a sudden, I'd get pushed off with, with unbelievable force into the bushes. He must have been a ninja, because I never saw him coming. <laughs> Being punched in the face repeatedly, <laughs> having your Halloween candy stolen, I guess I lived up to the name Pussy because I never stood up to him. Uh, I wasn't the only one who had problems with him. Some of my friends had problems with him too. But he singled me out. And it was awful. I mean, he used to outsource me to other bullies. <laughs> when, he was, when he was tired or sick or was away on vacation. <laughs> and you don't know, if you've never been bullied before, you don't know the lengths that you will go to to find out someone's schedule. <laughs> Just to know when you can play outside. <laughs> only to have Mark from down the street throw you to the ground and pummel you senseless because Paul told him to. <laughs> like I said, I never stood up to him. My parents never really did anything to either, but I don't blame them for it because in their eyes, it's just kids being kids. Now, I wanted, I wanted so much to grow up faster and leave that place. And I wanted Paul to just end up, just go to college. He was three years older than me. Just go to college already and leave me alone so I could actually enjoy being a kid in this beautiful neighborhood. So I could actually ride along the streets besides the two that were right next to my house. So that I could actually do my entire paper out and get all the tips instead of having to give half of it to my best friend because Paul would be waiting in the bushes. Eventually, as things go, he did move on to college and I moved away as well. And I never really got to truly enjoy being a kid and those scars of Paul both emotionally, physically, and mentally always stuck with me. Now time passes, and I was 26 years old, and I had, was now living with a woman that I had met at the Staples where I worked at. And on September 12, 2001, in a fit of confusion and emptiness, I decided to do the, probably the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life, and I asked her to marry me. <laughs> but. I had the same thought in my mind that probably a lot of you did too. Well, I gotta do something, right? But instead of donating my time or money, I decided to get married. <laughs> now at 26, it's not that I didn't love her, but at 26, I wasn't ready to settle down or be tied down to any one woman. So about a year later, after some soul searching, a lot of weed, friends advice, I actually called off the wedding a month before it happened. And I found myself lost, alone, broke, because <laughs> I actually paid for all the wedding, and just really 
I didn't know what I was doing with myself. So I ended up back at my parents' house, and my friends wanted nothing to do with me because I had pushed myself so hardcore on them because they were the only people that I had or thought I had. And my parents really, I mean, as supportive as they wanted to be, they couldn't be unbelievably supportive because of the fact that, I mean, who wants their 27-year-old son moving back into the house with them? <laughs> so the details get a little hazy now, um, but I do remember some things very starkly. One thing is that I wrote a suicide note on the back of a paper plate. In that suicide note, it detailed all the mistakes that I had made. And then I realized that suicide note was probably a mistake. So I crumpled it up and threw it away. And then I remember the night that I actually decided to do it. I remember walking to the bathroom, into the medicine cabinet, opening the door. The light was extremely bright. I reached in, grabbed the bottle of Excedrin PM, and I filled the cup full of water that I used to flush up my mouth after I brushed my teeth. Calmly went to the living room, sat down, and proceeded to take 150 Excedrin PM and swallow them at once. I just thought I would get drowsy, and I did, because so I, I just wanted to sleep. I didn't necessarily want to die, I just wanted to sleep. And the thing that you do fall asleep, but the thing that you don't know unless you've taken 100 pills is that your body fights like a cornered dog to keep you alive. It does whatever it needs to do to keep you from dying. And that means keeping you awake and making you throw up violently. The only thing is, is that the pills also want their say. So what happens is, is that the pills keep you asleep. So it was a constant battle. It was like an epic Michael Bay film <laughs> where I would just constantly fall asleep then wake up to throw up this black, just viscous. It was like evil coming right out of me. And finally I fell asleep and I thought it would be the end and I thought I was dead. But of course I woke up the next morning. I had failed again. You know, there's a saying that you failed at the only thing you can't fail at, and that's committing suicide. And I was like, well, no, I'm not upset that I failed. I'm kind of happy because I tried something new. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> to be honest, I was fucking terrified. So what I decided to do is I needed to realize that I didn't really want to be here, but I didn't want to go through what I went through the night before again. So I decided to check myself into an inpatient facility, and I did. Uh, the next morning I went, in, I went in and it took all day to check me in, but uh, the one thing that's nice about when you start to get checked into an inpatient facility, it's an instant relief, because it's almost pleasurable, because you're getting help. And that bed that they put you in, even though it's the most uncomfortable thing in the world, at that moment that bed is heavenly. And I pretty much fell right asleep, knowing that I was safe in these people's hands and that I would not, nothing bad would happen to me now. So the next morning I woke up to a soft voice and I couldn't quite make out what they said. And then the light snapped on and the voice repeated again, hey, get up, time to get up. Holy shit, it is you. And I looked up and I opened my eyes and as the sleep cleared from my eyes, I couldn't believe what I saw. I thought I had died and gone to hell or that I had lived and they brought hell to me because standing in the doorway was Paul. The bane of my childhood existence was now my keeper. So he looked at me and said, he looked at me and I, I was like, my first reaction was, holy shit, Paul, what the fuck? Don't hit me. He looked at me and said, hey, listen, I won't, I can't even if I wanted to. <laughs> and I, I, I looked up at him and, and I, I 
just everything was open at that point. Like I was just so weak and just not ready to deal with this. And I was in that position. He was in the position that every bully wants to be in with their victim just lying there not doing anything. <laughs> but he looked at me and said, hey, you okay? I thought about it for a second. I was like, no, I, I, not anymore. I mean, Jesus Christ, what the, f okay, now listen, I, how do I, the fuck do I get out of this? Jesus, that window looks flimsy enough. Um, if I take that chair and pick it up and throw it through the window like the Indian chief in Cuckoo's Nest, I can probably <laughs> jump out the window, then tuck and roll at the bottom, and I'll only get away from the six-story drop with a few bruises. I must have mused on this for a while because he looked at me again and said, hey, are you okay? And at that point, it sounded like he cared. <laughs> so I answered, I said to him, I said, uh, look at where I am, what do you think? He looked at me and said, hey, <laughs> yeah. You know, I always thought you were funny. And I waited for the dot, dot, dot looking that comes at the end of every time someone said I was funny. But it didn't come. And he said, hey, why don't you get up? I'll take you around and show you around the, the ward. And in the confusion that I was in, <laughs> I followed him. Now, what a lot of people don't know about being inpatient is it's not as bad as you think because everybody has their own preconceptions of what it's like. And it's really not as bad as you think. It's really kind of a nice place. Uh, there are the people who are quote unquote crazy in there. But a lot of people are just, for the most part, most of the people are just like you. They just need a place to, to kind of get back on their feet. And they feed you like crazy. And you can finally catch up on that, that coloring that you wanted to do as an adult but never got a chance to. <laughs> So, <laughs> so as I walked through the ward with Paul, we kind of chatted about a few things, chatted about what had happened in our lives and really basic stuff. And I realized as I was looking at him, I'm like, wow, he's somehow smaller and wiser. And he seems much kinder, like he almost dropped the bully inside of him and became a human being. I was still intimidated by him, <laughs> don't get me wrong. But I felt bad now that I was intimidated by him, like I had judged him unjustly all those years. Now, as we were walking through, I kind of came to the realization that, holy shit, the kid who bullied me all my life was a male nurse, the most ridiculed of all medical professions. <laughs> <laughs> so I said it to him, and his response to me was, yeah? Well, you got bullied by a male nurse. <laughs> Completely echoing what was going on in my head. <laughs> and I had nothing to re respond to him. Now, Paul had actually become pretty amazing in the years that I hadn't seen him. Um, we actually talked a lot. He became actually uh, one of the people that I went to the most in, the, in when I was inpatient. Uh, we found out when my mother brought in a stack of comic books for me that he was actually into comics as well. And we both had a mutual respect for heavy metal music. Uh, so he was almost, you know, it was really nice to be around someone without having to be afraid of a fist flying out of nowhere. I almost called him a friend. Now, the one thing that always struck me while I was in there, the one thing that struck me the most was the fact that he never apologized for bullying me. So I didn't want to confront him on it, but I finally steeled my resolve, and on the last day I was in there, I did. And I walked up to him and said, hey, Paul, um, I just got one question for you. Why? He looked at me and went, why what? I said, why, for all those years, did you bully me? Was it something that I did? Was there something wrong with you? Were you a messed up kid? Or was there something wrong with your parents? Why did you do it? 
and the air was filled with dread because I had just confronted my bully. But I had to do it. I had to, I had to press on for all the people who never got a chance to. And he looked at me and said, wow, uh, I was afraid of this because I'm not gonna give you the answer that you wanna hear. To be honest with you, I was not a messed up kid. There was nothing wrong with you and my parents were really cool. I just thought it was fun. But hey man, we were kids. Kids bully and kids get bullied. I'm not the reason you're here, am I? I really hope not. And I thought about it, because that struck me immediately, and I thought about it. And I was like, no, he's not. Because to be honest, I was the person who had put me in here. I was the person who had done all the things in my life that led me to the place where I was now. And in fact, I was the one who did the most harm to myself. So I muttered a quick, no, you're not, <laughs> under my breath, almost embarrassed. He looked at me and said, well, I am sorry for the shit I did. So again, taken aback, I just muttered a quick thanks and turned to leave. And I realized at that moment that Paul had actually done more for me in that brief exchange than any amount of therapy had done up to that point. Because I realized that sometimes the people that you think you can't rely on or think you can't trust are sometimes the only people that can get you out of a dark spot. And as I was leaving, I never saw Paul again, by the way, because what happens inside stays inside. But as I was leaving, I do remember the last thing he said to me. He looked over at me and went, hey, Hope you end up all right. Stop being a fucking pussy. <laughs> Thank you. Josh Fourier. You know, I actually wouldn't mind being bullied by a male nurse, but... <laughs> It would have to be negotiated first with safe words and all that sort of thing. Actually, you know, we've ha unfortunately, like it really weighs on me after a while to hear similar kinds of stories. And this is one of those genres where I get, you know, very stressed after a while hearing about bullying stories. And Josh, when, when we were running it over, he kept saying, like everyone has to deal with, like he would say, uh, so I had a bully when I was a kid, like everyone does. And he would throw rocks at my head, like everyone's bully does. And I finally had to say, Josh, wait a minute. Not everyone has to deal with that. And we're hoping that by sharing these kinds of things, we can uh, lessen that sort of thing going on. All right, I'd like to bring our next storyteller up to the show. She, we've had the delight of having her tell a story in our home base in New York City, where we do uh, Risk once a month. And she also has a show right here on a regular basis at the Middlesex Lounge called The Horse's Mouth. Please welcome to the stage Lillian Devane. Hi everyone, how are you? Good, awesome. So not so long ago, I had my total dream job. I was a manager and a buyer for a 
amazing vintage store. Uh, it was like vintage store heaven. It was this opulent store with like lush rugs and ferns and gold sconces. And I got to travel like all over the place and, and hunt in dusty warehouses for awesome treasures. It was so fun. Uh, but best of all, I met my three dearest friends working there. And we would pass just long afternoons drinking coffee, like trying on party dresses, listening to the crystals, and just sort of living in this fantasy land of our own making. It was awesome. So my three friends, Sarah, uh, she was this sort of shy, eccentric kind of person. Uh, She wore like knee-high fringe boots, uh, and she was a musician in this really hip band, and she lived in this amazing apartment with her bandmate and fiancé. And uh, she she was shy, but when she came out of her shell, I realized that she was a totally amazing weirdo. Like, she would put on a silk robe and just quietly be like, do you want to come over to my house and make a blood spell with me later? Uh, and that just meant like cooking pasta salad like I was not a big I'd be like yeah that sounds awesome Um, and then Molly was like this all American rural farm girl from New York uh, like upstate New York and one time she fell off a galloping horse and just poured whiskey into her own wounds it's like what Uh, and she wore this like tiny little suede vest and she knows nothing about popular culture she's like Arnell you know what I mean she's just so sweet and then last was Allie and she's this tiny pint sized like loud mouth true Massachusetts girl her father is a Gloucester lobsterman and he was actually in the perfect storm like you can't get (laughs) any more Massachusetts than that. She, she like chain smoked and made collages and lived in this huge house full of boys named Bobby. Uh, and she always had to cut like the bottom third off of a 50s dress because she was so tiny. And she'd always come and be like, guys, uh, I look like a real dime today. I mean, that means a 10. I look like a 10. I'm like, all right, mom. All right. All right, buddy. Um, and then there was our boss. Shelly. Shelly was an heiress. Just to give you a quick idea, uh, Shelly's internet password hint was the name of granddaddy's boat. So my first real interaction with Shelly was she hosted this introduction dinner party uh, because she bought this store and renovated it and she wanted us all to meet before we started working together. So I showed up at her parents' like a tasteful Cambridge home uh, and she greeted me at the door wearing like a see-through mesh shirt with no bra and tight white pants. Uh, and she was like, come on in. And, and we went into the living room where, where the other girls were sitting. Uh, and she was like, Lillian, I was just telling the girls about what a picky eater I used to be. When I was a baby, okay, all I would eat was pate and a few select soft cheeses. <laughs> and I was like, oh, whoa. Um... She was like, oh, you know, these evenings always remind me of uh, eating at the Waldorf in New York with my grandmere, and um, she's just such a true old world New Yorker, you know, and I was like, no, but I don't know what a grandmere is, but okay, that sounds fun. Um, and so <laughs> that night, uh, she like gave us like castaway designer clothes, and we all left being like, we have stumbled into this amazing great fortune. Uh, everything is going to be amazing. Um, so at first, Shelley's antics were 
strange but sweet. Um, like, for example, she got Allie a new couch for her house. And she showed up just randomly with it, um, which, was, which was nice. But then she stayed for two hours and rearranged her entire house. Like, all the furniture. And Allie was, like, horrified. But what can you do when your boss is telling you to move an end table by the window? Like, you have to move the end table by the window. It's your boss. Like, you, you have to do that. And I remember one particular night, I was at Molly's house. We were drinking some wine. And, and the buzzer goes off in her apartment. We thought it was just, like, one of our friends. So we buzzed her up. And uh, it was Shelly. And she was standing there in this, like, fur coat with her eyes glistening. And she had these two mysterious bundles. And we were like, hey. And she's like, hi, girls. I'm really sorry for barging in, but I was rummaging through a dead woman's home today, okay? And I found these blankets, and I knew you had to have them, Molly, okay? And she held up these blankets, and they're just like disgusting, like moldy. Just they're like lined with pom-poms, you know? And she's like, they're pre-war. Are you guys drinking wine? Uh, Molly was like, thanks. Do you want some? Molly's like, so nice. I was just, you know, and she's like, oh, I just, yeah, I'll just have a glass, okay? And uh, she's like, girls, okay, I have a question for you, girls. Uh, it's a sexual question. And I was like, oh, God. like my stomach was already in knots from like seeing my boss unexpectedly, and now I thought that I was just I was gonna throw up. And uh, she was like, it's a sexual question. Um, so when my boyfriend and I have sex, neither of us come. Is that weird? And I was like, should I call OSHA right now? Like, does the Better Business Bureau make house calls? Like, can I just have them? And Molly was like, uh, well, you know, everyone's different. Um. You know, and Shelly was like, you know, forget I asked. I'm so, I forget I asked. I'm just, you know, I'm so exhausted. I've been up since five. All I've had is yogurt. I'm just, I'm so tired, Molly. And then she just opens Molly's bedroom door and gets in her bed. <laughs> and Molly looked like she'd just taken like buckshot to the chest. She was just like, uh, hey, Shelly, like my boyfriend lives here and he's going to be home later. So you can't really sleep there and Shelly was like it's okay we can just cuddle until he gets back <laughs> and it's like you think you know how to get someone out of your own bed uh, until it's your boss snuggling with a dead woman's blanket like you don't really like where do you go from there um so as the fall came, things got busier and busier in the store. The students are back. We're selling a lot of uh, wool blazers. Um, and <laughs> Shelly would just text or call me at any time in the day at any, about anything all the time. And I would take the calls because, you know, I, w I was the manager. It was my job. But it was pretty stressful. And whenever her car would roll up to the store, we would just all freak out and try to make sure everything looked perfect. But when she came in with this one particular look on her face, we just knew it was all over. Uh, she would like zero in on one thing that was wrong, like, uh, like a stuck drawer in an antique desk. And she'd just like ram it over and over again and look at us eventually and just be like, why didn't anyone tell me this was broken? 
why didn't anyone tell me that? And I'd be like, whoa, Shelly, I'm sorry. You know, uh, I just figured it's just this, the, the, the desk is like 100 years old. I figured it'd be okay. And she's like, it's not okay because it means that if this isn't being attended to, then other more important things aren't being attended to. And then she just start crying. Um, and then I console her and I'd be like, Shelly, you know, it's really hard being a small business owner. Like, it's really stressful. Um, you've got a lot on your mind. Have you had lunch? Have you eaten? And she'd be like, no. And I'd be like, why don't you go get a sandwich? and then just come on back and she'd be like oh my god I'm so lucky to have you guys I don't know what I would do without you you're all so smart and stylish and pretty except Lillian I can see right through your shirt girlfriend you should invest in some better bras lady look at Sarah's boobs they're amazing like no sandwich is gonna fix this situation um, so Sarah and I, we, we, you know, wrote the monthly newsletter. We inventoried all the stuff. Uh, we did research on style and we just spent all of our time getting sponsorship and just putting the word out in the store. We, we put so much of our heart into it. And eventually Shelly noticed and she took us aside one day and she said, you know, girls, I don't want to be in this business forever. I want to move eventually to South America and open up an eco bed and breakfast. And when that time comes, I want you to take over the store as owners. And I was like, I let my mind wander to this future, you know, of shopping and traveling with my best friend being a business owner. It's like, I didn't even have a credit card. It's like, maybe I should start taking life a little bit more seriously. Like, it it didn't sound so bad to me. Shelly often went on long trips um, and it was actually better that way because when she was in the store she made everyone uncomfortable she made customers really uncomfortable one time a Hispanic woman was shopping and she went up to her in this like put on accent and was like you must have been somewhere fun and tropical girl look at your tan and the woman was like this is what my skin looks like all the time And I, like, wanted to, like, crawl into a door if that were possible. It was just horrifying. But, you know, I I kind of felt like all of this was a means to an end because putting up with all of these tantrums, it was all for the purpose of a better future for me. And I I stuck through it. Um, But it kind of became eventually clear uh, that she wasn't just an eccentric, rich person. Uh, She was just a narcissistic millionaire. And it's a fine line, but she was doing the Charleston, like, way over it. You know what I mean? Like, it was a roller coaster all the time. It was getting to be a bit much. But she announced that she was going to open up two new stores, which was also insane. Uh, One of them was like a rustic outpost with sheepskin all over the couches and like an old jukebox with Lou Reed B-sides. And the other one was like a... um, like a little cozy store uh, it specialized in like pre-1960s formal wear. Very specific. Jesus Christ. Um, and it was a lot of work to open it. Like Sarah and I, we spent like, like just countless hours 
polishing huge walls of men's vintage boots and just inventorying everything. It took us like a week of 12-hour days. It was totally insane. I was covered in shoe polish and stickers. But I thought, you know, this is this is worth it. This this place is ours. I mean, it felt like it was ours, you know, because Shelley had the money to make everything beautiful, but we cared enough about it uh, to give it a soul, you know. So... The new store was amazing, the rustic store. My, my friends and neighbors would stroll in and out. They would like buy us sodas and put songs on the jukebox and play guitar, and we would just hang out. Um, and like I had a crush on this guy, and I'd put like E5 on every time he'd come in, and like hope he'd notice. And then we'd like lock up at night and have a barbecue at night. And it was just like the premise of a sitcom that was like way too cutesy. Like I'd never watch it because I'd be like, that's contrived. That doesn't happen in real life. But it was like the best summer of my life. It was it was so amazing free and spontaneous but work was becoming increasingly insane it was just way too much for all of us to handle Molly and Allie and Sarah were so stressed out every time the phone rang they'd like jump and have an like I think they all got prescriptions for anti-anxiety medication around this point like it was becoming very intense and Shelly would call and she'd be like um okay what are the sales totals for the end of the day for all the stores and we'd tell her and if they were too low she'd be like you have to talk to customers and look at their body and tell them what they want and analyze it and give them what they want for their body. And I was like, are you an overbearing mom at Sears with a husky teen? Like, let's relax. People don't want to be treated that way. That is crazy. Um, so I would spend, you know, hours in the basement doing inventory, just like hundreds of items, steaming 1920s gowns, all day long, it was exhausting. Um, and one day, after a particularly long day, I didn't finish what I wanted to finish. So I told Molly, I was like, hey, you close up. I'm going to stay here at night. I'm going to do some extra work. Uh, so about like two hours of fondling pillbox hats, uh, <laughs> I called it quits, had a couple drinks, and I was like, I think they should do a study uh, that correlates like a love of vintage clothing to like high blood pressure because I can't do this anymore. Um, so the next morning I got this text from Shelly and I like, kind of immediately knew something was really wrong. Um, and she was like, can you come by the store right now? And I was like, what's up? Is everything okay? And she was like, no. She's like, there's a lot of problems with the inventory you did. And I was like, okay. Like, I was just trying to think of what I could possibly have done wrong. So I'm walking over there. It's like a gray, you know, like late morning. And I walk over, and she's in the basement waiting by a rack of like 20 items. She's like, hi, Lillian. I was like, hey. And she was like, do you think that you did a good job with the inventory this week? And I was like, well, yeah, I, I, there was a lot. I, I did my best. And she was like, let's look at your best right now. Let's look at it. <laughs> I was like, okay. She was like, this dress is labeled 1960s party dress. And I was like, okay. And she's like, it's a cocktail dress. And I was like, isn't it the same thing? She's like, this shirt is a man's shirt, okay? You have it in the women's section. I was like, well, it's really tiny. I thought a woman could be, she's like... I can't believe that you did all of this wrong. I can't believe, I assumed you were down here doing great work and you're just doing everything wrong. And I was like, I've been doing this work for you for years. And she was just like, I should fire you for this. And I was like, what? And she was like, I can't afford to pay you to make up for these mistakes, so you need to go home for a week without pay and decide if you want to come back to your job. And I was just like, 
it was insane. It was like total betrayal. Like I had done everything for years for the stores. And so I just rushed out. I was just so upset. I called all the girls and I was like, I don't know what's going on. Did I just get fired? Am I being forced out? Let go. Like, do, do I even want to stay? Because, you know, this is so crazy. And that night uh, I made a couple margaritas in my house uh, and I decided that um, I wasn't going back. So I texted her, uh, I'm not coming into work tomorrow uh, or ever again. And then I texted her three dancing lady emojis. Just because I was sort of drunk and I thought it was funny. Uh, But I really had no idea of the consequences that would come when I texted those flamenco ladies to my boss. Um, the initial rush was amazing, right? When you quit a job like that, it's, I've never done that before. And I was like, holy fuck, this rules. And then I was like, oh my God, I'm so fucked right now. I was just like, my friends are proud. I don't have any money. And also I was like, cool, my whole career path and being an adult is just gone. Like I don't have, I still don't have a credit card and I'm in my late twenties and I don't have anything at all. Um, and I filed for unemployment And this time in my life became known as the 1930s of my life uh, because it was the worst. Um, Everyone was really worried about me. Um, They gave me like intel uh, about how the stores were doing, but they wouldn't talk to Shelly about me, which was like pretty awesome. Um, I started selling my blood every couple of weeks to this guy named Eric uh, with rhinestone earrings and he would give me like cash out of his pocket. I'd be like, awesome. Um, It was really bad and I like my days were just like gray and useless and long and the people at the unemployment office were like, you're totally going to win. Your boss is bullshit. I was like, thank you, Nancy. She is bullshit. And Nancy was like, she's going to fight you, though. And I was like, whatever. It's fine. I can take it. Um, So I'm applying for jobs, like fancy lady jobs, coffee shop jobs. No one's getting back to me. And then I get a notice uh, in the mail that I won my initial unemployment thing, but Shelly's contesting it. So now I have to go to an unemployment hearing with, like, a judge and her family lawyer and witnesses. And I was just like, I don't want this. I don't want to ever see her again. I don't want to fight for, like, a stupid, tiny paycheck. I just want my life back. I'd lost my identity, my community, everything that meant anything to me. And it was just, it was, it was the worst. And I think rock bottom for me was I answered a Craigslist ad. Never a good start. Uh, I answered a Craigslist ad for a, uh, a hospital training video about bulimia for like an actress. I paid like a grand, it was a thousand dollars. But I had to send in like my measurements and a picture of me in my underwear, which was like the sweatiest, most unsexy picture of anyone in their underwear ever. Uh, and I passed the first couple rounds and then the casting director who I Googled Okay, and she casted the fighter, hopefully. Um, she was like, we need a video of you throwing up in your underwear so that the directors know that you can do it on cue. And I was like, that's totally normal. Um, there's no like weird, fucked up fetish sight of girls barfing in their underwear, right? Um, this is like Hollywood. Like, I gotta do whatever it takes. You know what I mean? So... I had Sarah bake a pie, and I ate 
half of it as fast as I could, and then I took a couple shots of rum, and I went to the bathroom, and Sarah videotaped me throwing up in her bathroom. Like, I pulled the trigger a lot in college. Like, I know how to do it. Um, And I was just like, wow, I just puked on camera to maybe not get a real job to pay my rent. Like, I felt totally insane. It felt crazy. So the time came for my my unemployment hearing, and I've never been so nervous in my life, you guys. And I've met David Byrne. Do you know what I mean? Like, that was... It was terrifying. So I'm sitting in this tiny government waiting room. I'm holding Sarah, also my star witness's hand. And I'm just like, my eyes are brimming with tears. I'm so freaked out. Like, I don't want to do this at all. And I'm rubbing like the, she made us power bracelets. So I'm rubbing the power bracelets. And we get into the room and her, her lawyer is like, super dramatic law and order style questioning me. Like he's trying, he's like character, he's like trying to make me look like an alcoholic slut, which, mm, (laughs) irrelevant, which was ultimately ruled irrelevant to the case. Um, Whatever. And then he was like, Miss Devane, is it true you're a comedian? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, "Uh, do you make money off of your comedy shows? And I was like, God, I wish. And the invisible jury just like died laughing. They thought it was so funny. They thought it was so funny. Um, So I didn't get the bulimia job. Um, I convinced myself it was because I was too fat. Um, uh, And... I got, uh, in the mail, I got a notice that I I also lost my unemployment hearing, uh, which was completely devastating. I I had to, like, pill myself to sleep that night. Uh, Molly and and Allie and Sarah were so uh, supportive to me, and that meant more to me than, like, any stupid, you know, court decision. Uh, but, But it was really terrible. And, you know, eventually, eventually they all quit, like, sort of, sort of in solidarity. They, they quit one by one and, and her businesses eventually folded. Um, and I kind of realized that, like, yes, I'd done something totally stupid and rash, uh, but I'd stood up for myself. I was still a good person and my boss is not a good person. Um, and sort of the fact that, that everything uh, eventually ends and, like, some of my beautiful 60s vintage dresses are falling apart and they're, and they're getting torn and you know, it's really hard to throw them away because of so many memories I've had in them and, and they're so beautiful, but, you know, it's their time to go. And sometimes you're not ready to say goodbye. Like, it's too scary and it's too soon, but you have to. And, and the best that you can hope for is just to, to have a friend and you can hold their hand and get to the future. So, thank you. Okay, I'd like to bring up our final storyteller of the evening. He performs regularly at Improv Boston. You can find him at willluera.com. Please welcome to the stage, Will Luera. (laughs) 
So like young, most young men, I adored my father. I think he was a hero. He was absolutely fantastic. I remember him waking me up early so that we could play. Uh, there was this old video game system uh, made by Magnavox called Odyssey. He would wake me up so that we could play this pixelated golf game that he really enjoyed. I remember him also waking me up so that we could watch Lone Ranger cartoons on Saturday morning. I remember his diesel-powered car. Uh, like He allowed me to unplug it from the wall because that's what you needed to do to let this car run. I remember when he uh, got an injury on his elbow, an unexplained injury. I remember walking in on him in a garage, in our garage, uh, really dark, danky garage, suddenly the bright light of that day cutting right through that, and seeing him at a table with a scale in front of him and all sorts of little bags and boxes all around him. I remember him chasing my mother's car as she drove away right before they got a divorce. When I was about eight, my parents separated and they divorced. Like most kids in that situation, you spend the week with your mother, you spend the weekends with your dad. And I used to love those weekends. Uh, he had a collection of G.I. Joe toys that, that was superior to my mother's collection of G.I. Joe toys, uh, which made going to his house that much more enjoyable. Uh, so my brother and I would go every weekend. Uh, what I had noticed is that also during this time, uh, the old diesel car was replaced by a really nice gold Lincoln Continental. Uh, much nicer, right? Just a smoother ride. Then one day, one weekend, my father didn't pick us up. He just didn't show up. And my mother said, well, he's away, uh, but he'll be back. I'm like, okay, all right, so I'll wait a few days. The next weekend, he didn't show up again. Weekend after that, then a few weekends passed by, and it was excuse after excuse after excuse. He's away, he's visiting your family, he's in Texas, he's visiting friends. All of these different things were being said uh, every single week. Eventually, my uncle pulls me aside, my mother's brother, and he says, I think you should know, and this is, imagine a nine-year-old me, not that much shorter than what I am now, but imagine a nine-year-old me, and... He said, I think you should know that your father is in prison. He is going to be away for a very long time. And I had all sorts of questions, uh, trying to figure out what does a long time mean, what happened, why is he away. Nobody really knew any of these details. Eventually, I started to sink into my mom's new life. You start calling your stepfather dad. You start... Uh, calling your new step-grandparents, grandpa and grandma. Uh, you start to make a new life for yourself, right? Uh, then, sometime when I was about 12 years old, something happened. Uh, it might have been the smell of my favorite Mexican food, or it might have been because I was watching a White Sox game. But something happened that triggered the memory of my father. And I said, you know what? I need to find out where he is. I need to know what is going on. The only thing I could find out from anybody is that he was at a penitentiary in Minnesota. 
So I start calling state penitentiaries in Minnesota. Now, you couldn't Google this back then, so you just have to pull out all sorts of phone books and have 411 operators forward you to other 411 operators. But eventually, you get some phone numbers of different state penitentiaries in Minnesota. I start asking them, uh, do, uh, do you have a uh, prisoner called William Luera? William Luera, blah, 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 blah. Eventually, they're like, ah, yes, uh, there was a William Luera here. Uh, but he's been transferred over to the Illinois State Penitentiary in Chicago. Uh, now, I was in Chicago, that's where I grew up. So now my father was a couple of miles away from where I was. So now, and I knew the exact penitentiary, uh, I, I, I had a phone number uh, that they gave me, and I called. Hi, I'm looking for William Luera. Hold, please. They come back to me. They're like, all right, could you tell us a little bit more about him? I, I, at that age, I didn't really have that many details. I provided what I can, but I guess it was just, they, they had to fact check my story, and then they were gonna call me back. They call me back and they're like, okay, we found your father. Uh, could you give us a phone number where he can call you at? So I passed that phone number on. A few days later, the phone rings. I pick it up, and sure enough, it's that familiar voice. Now, I don't think anyone here has ever talked to my father, but my father, uh, his English is pretty good. Uh, I mean, it's great, he was born in the States, but it's still, uh, it has, a, it has a, uh, a touch, a flair of a Mexican accent across it. He, he was born on a border town in Texas, so it's got this, this, this touch of a Mexican accent that I remember picking up on immediately, right? Uh, you know, and he's just like, mijo? son, right? Uh, and I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, it's my, it's my dad. Uh, and we just start catching up on everything that the last few, that we've lost the last few years. I start telling him about what I'm, you know, the, the high schools I'm thinking about going to and, uh, you know, what's going on in my life. I catch him up on my brother. He starts telling me about everything that's going on in his life. Uh, he's telling me that he is now the head chef of the prison kitchen. Uh, this was a big deal for him. He told me that people loved his cooking. He told me about bookshelves and bookends and things that he was creating in his carpentry class. He was telling me about wallets that he was making in his leather class or something, right? And he's like, I'm gonna make a bunch of wallets and I'm gonna give them to you when I get out of here. I'm like, yeah, that's great, Dad, that's great. Then we started to write each other, so now I had letters from him. We were finally re-engaged. He then tells me a few months later, he's like, they're letting me out early on good behavior. Um, I'll be getting out in about another year. So by the time I was 14, my father, uh, who I had not seen for a few years, was reintroduced into my life. This was no longer the same man that I saw before. This man was much skinnier, uh, he had less hair, and he was afraid. He was afraid of everything. He was afraid of crossing the street at the wrong time. He was afraid of making eye contact with anyone. He was afraid in stores of, of saying the wrong thing. I also remember that his sunglasses were smaller. He used to have big sunglasses. Now he had more modest ones. My dad had been taken down a few notches. No more nice suits or snakeskin boots. It was now polo shirts and khakis. The one thing about my dad, though, is that he was determined. Now, I should share here that my father went away to prison because he was a major drug dealer in Chicago, okay, if that wasn't clear. The injury on his elbow was actually a gunshot that he received. The new car was probably bought with drug money. He was caught with about $100,000 worth of cocaine in his trunk. So, at this point, I'm starting to learn all of these details, and he's trying to now make a new life for himself. Again, my father being the determined man that he is. He 
buys a car. And then I notice that about a week later, he has a new car. And then about a week after that, he has another new car and another one in a garage. So what I was noticing is that what my father was doing is, was just flipping cars, right? Uh, he was, your standard flipping car thing, right, is what my dad, he would buy an old car, remodel it, and, and, and sell it. And he was slowly rebuilding himself. He was slowly rebuilding uh, his life. Suddenly, the khakis and polo shirts went away. He started to get nicer clothing. He started to get nicer sunglasses. Now the jewelry that he lost when he went away to prison, now suddenly again with the gold chains and the watches and all of that. I remember one day he picked me up and he's like, hey, I've got something to show you. Come with me. We get into a car, a different car. It was like a different car every week. Uh, and we drive up uh, Western Avenue in Chicago up to about 60th, 70th Street where there's a lot of other used car lots. And he's like, I have something to show you. And we pull into a lot where there's about a dozen cars and there's all these streamers and a big Mexican and American flag, two flags, right, right, one right next to each other. And on it, there's a little trailer that says Rainbow Auto Sales. And my dad is like, this is mine. This is mine. And he's showing me that he has made it. He has rebuilt himself a couple of years out of prison. He has now been able to continue his American dream. And he was so proud of showing me all of his used cars that he had. And I, was, I was so, so happy for him. And I was so happy that my father was back in my life. And finally, there was some semblance of balance. Over the next years, I was prepping to graduate from high school. Things continued to change. When I met with my father, it would be over dinners at restaurants where I would not see him. We would go in, he would go into a back room with a couple of other guys. He'd be gone, I'd eat by myself. He'd come back and then we'd leave. Mexican restaurants, Korean restaurants, Chinese restaurants, Indian restaurants, all types of different restaurants. Clothes started to get nicer. The nice boots started to come back, the big belt buckles, the big sunglasses, uh, the huge cell phones, beepers, all that. It all started to come back. And I knew what was happening. I knew, as soon as he bought his first nice big house, I knew what the path was that we were going down. Here's a man that I love, and love to this day. This guy is incredible. But he was doing this again. When I started to apply for school, I wanted to get away from all of this. I wanted to get away from home. I needed, I needed to get away from the tension of, of a, of a drug-dealing dad. So I applied to schools far away from Chicago. Uh, the school that gave me the best deal was Boston College. And I said, okay, I'm going to Boston. I'm getting out of here. So I go. And communication between my dad and I just is now more over telephone. I eventually drive from Chicago to Boston with as many belongings as I could bring with me, trying to get myself away from Chicago. The summer after my sophomore year, I go back home. And my father and I go see the movie True Lies. I'm sure folks remember this movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tom Arnold. Uh, it was a Bill Paxton, right? And I'll never forget this one scene. My father freaking loved it and lost his shit in this one scene where Bill Paxton is being held over the dam when he's pretending to be Carlos the Jackal, right? And then he pees himself. And I, I'll never forget the way my dad was laughing. I mean, he thought this was the funniest thing in the world. And he's like hitting me. He's doing one of these things. He's like, he's like, look at 
pissing himself, right? And he's like laughing, doubled over. Uh, he just absolutely, and I, I remember just looking at him and loving it. I mean, that moment, I could still feel him hitting me on my shoulder and me just enjoying the laughter that is so unique to my dad. And I just felt great. That night, after we have some dinner, we go back to his place, and I just say, all right, Dad, uh, that, was, that was a lot of fun. I'm going back to school in a couple of weeks. Uh, so uh, let's just hang out a few more times before I leave. We say goodbye. The next day, I don't hear from him. I don't see him. He's gone. You see, leading up to this night, and in fact, the summer leading up to this day, was a very difficult summer. When I had come back from BC to visit him, the man had become a lot more agitated, a lot more paranoid. He was constantly looking over his shoulder. He would sit at restaurants whenever he did sit with me and making sure he was in a place where he could see the exit. He would always be screening phone calls, never take anything. Whenever he drove me home, it would never be the straight way. It would be a bunch of side roads and alleyways. We would stop extra long at red lights. We would take expressways that would go up north and then back down south just to get me home. At the same time, my aunt, who lived with him, would be crying tears, telling me, uh, they're outside, they're looking at us. They are looking at us. And sure enough, there'd be cars outside of his apartment, uh, lights down. You could see two figures that were just staring at us at all times. During that summer as well, I remember going over about $10,000 worth of 50s and 100s, making sure that they weren't counterfeit. I remember taking boxes to friends' restaurants. My father was kind of innocently pulling me into this, never knew what I was doing, but again, it's your dad. It's like, what, what do you do? It's, you know, your dad is asking you to do something and you do it. He was gone. I didn't know where he was. And I played it all off as if it was normal because all my family members knew nothing. All of his brothers and sisters had also been gone. No, no one knew anything. No one could tell me anything. I went back to BC playing off as if I would talk to my dad every weekend and whatnot. The next year after the final exam of my junior year, as I'm walking up the stairs, with my girlfriend, we're about to have a end of school year night out. I hear footsteps behind me coming up the same stairs of my apartment building. And I thought it was unusual because they were so close to me, but I thought it was maybe somebody from another apartment. As soon as we get in to our apart into my apartment, I hear a knock. They have a picture. Do you know who this man is? Uh, no. Do you know who this is? Look at it closely. Uh, no. They're like, this is your father, and we want you to tell us where he is because we know you know where he is. We're U.S. Marshals, and we're, and we're going to find your father. They immediately separate my girlfriend and I, and they, they question me for a couple of hours. The first thing they make you sign, whether or not this is legit or not, is a piece of paper that says that if you're lying, you're gonna pay a $10,000 fine and go to prison for five years. That's a lot of pressure. When you're under questioning, they don't give you a place to sit and you just sort of, st I was just standing there fielding all of these questions. They wanted to know where my father was. I told them everything I knew, which was nothing. 
This continued for a few days. I would go back into the U.S. Marshal's office in Post Office Square. In fact, whenever I walk through there now, I, it makes me nervous. Uh, and I told them everything. I shared phone records with them. I gave them everything I, they wanted, and they saw that I had nothing to hide. A few days later, I would find out that my mother back in Chicago, who was divorced from my father for years, got the same visit. I found out that relatives all over the country were getting the same visit. I would later find out that my father was caught with about $250,000 of cocaine and other drugs in his trunk. So he was gonna go to prison for a long time. And they were finding him, because he was a connection to some higher network. Uh, my dad was high up in the Chicago drug cartel. And this was, this was important, <laughs> they needed to find him. After a while, the U.S. Marshal stopped visiting. After a while, the call stopped. I remember that night that they came was the first time I had peed my bed since I was about 12 years old. But we would not hear from them anymore. I would often question, you know, what am I becoming? What part of my dad am I going to take on? What mistakes am I going to make? My time with my dad was brief and spotted. Right, never continuous. But what I said at the top about loving your dad, I absolutely still to this day love my father. He was not a perfect man. He made a lot of mistakes and he probably hurt a lot of people. But the lessons I took from my time with him, I love my kids and I will do anything for my kids. He taught me how to be a gentleman with women and now I have a beautiful wife. He taught me that friends always come first. Regardless of what you're doing, you gotta take care of your friends. He taught me to be a White Sox fan, thank God, not a Cubs fan. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he taught me how to, uh, how to appreciate moments, however brief. A few months after the visit from the U.S. Marshals, I got a call. I didn't have any, uh, I didn't have a cell phone, I just had a landline, I pick it up, and I hear a lot of background noise, cars, ambiance of like a city, Spanish. Now this next part I'm always reluctant to share because I'm not exactly sure of the legal implications, not for any of you, but more for me, but the voice on the other end was recognizable. I knew the voice. And the voice just said, hey, I just want you to know that your dad is okay. Um, where is he? Just want you to know that your dad is fine and he's okay. Will I see him again? Your dad is very proud of you and he wants you to know that he's happy. Then the ambiance stopped, the phone clicked and I have never gotten another phone call since, but I am at least at peace. And I know that that story has ended and that chapter in my life and his life is now closed. And what I feel is a happy, unsure, uh, but still happy ending. Thank you. <laughs> Oh,
That is it for this episode, folks. This is The Lone Bellow behind me now. Song recommended to me by our Risk Music intern, Chris Malawaney. If you want to be a Risk Music intern as well, just write to me at kevin at risk-show.com and I'll tell you how you can uh, suggest songs that can be on the show. Folks, if you are in Washington, D.C., we will be there on June 7th. We're doing two shows at the Beer Baron. Lots of great stories have come in for that show. On the 13th of June, we are at Chapel Hill, North Carolina, at the DSI Comedy Theater. Check us out if you're anywhere near Chapel Hill on June 13th. On June 26th, we have our normal New York and Los Angeles shows. Those are every fourth Thursday at the Pit in New York and the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles. And then on July 4th, we're in London, England. If you live in London, pitch us your story. You could be on the show. Same is true if you live in Chicago, Illinois. We are there on July 22nd. Pitch us your story, Chicago. It's going to be great to come back. Don't forget, there are all sorts of ways to learn about storytelling. Storytelling for your social life. Storytelling for the stage. Storytelling for your career, for business. And we teach and tutor all of these things at thestorystudio.org. Corporate workshops, one-on-one consultations. I personally help a lot of people prepare solo shows or memoir material. I meet with Risk fans from all around the world, helping them prepare stories over Skype. We've had a lot of very wonderful corporate workshops that have happened this spring so far. And you can learn more about all of this at thestorystudio.org. Also, don't forget that Risk is a Maximum Fun podcast. We're a part of the Maximum Fun network, and we're listener-supported. We very much need the support of the people who love our show. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and be sure to earmark your contribution or your membership for risk. It means the world to us. And it means the continuing existence of this show. Again, that's MaximumFun.org slash donate. And don't forget to earmark it for this show. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Folks, today's the day. <laughs> Fuck me.